Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. I have really, really been looking forward to this conversation. It is extremely well-timed. I said to our staff the other day, please get Dr. Kierkegaard. Jacob von Kierkegaard is out of Denmark, where he had uh, significant experience in their defense sector and has become a required read at the Peterson Institute for International Economics on the dynamics of international relations and the economics of the continent of Europe. And we are in need of an up, uh, uh, update. Uh, Jacob, wonderful to have you with us again. Is it a generational change in Europe as we see Lagarde and von der Leyen vetted? I mean, I think, uh, you know, we do have an extraordinary situation now in 2019 where basically all the top jobs at the top of the European institutions, including the European Central Bank, change in the same year. It only happens once every 40 years. Uh, and then, of course, we have had uh, also a number of changes in national governments. Uh, so, yes, uh, I don't think yeah. if you look at the age of some of the people that have been appointed are necessarily a generational right. change, but certainly uh, a major clear out of the executive suites. Give us the Kierkegaard meter. It's a famous meter, folks. You can see it at the Louvre. Give us a measurement of the Kierkegaard meter of the United States of Europe. What a phrase from the past. How united are the states of Europe? Uh, well, I mean, by some measure, in the age of Brexit, uh, they're obviously not united at all. Uh, but at the same time, I think if you're looking at uh, at least the uh, EU 27 or continental Europe yeah. plus Ireland, uh, they look pretty good. I mean, you know, I think the economics there are... Uh, uh, fairly stable. I mean, I think there is a floor on, on growth, uh, irrespective of what happens to global growth and global trade of somewhere around 1.2 to 1.5% because of uh, more proactive fiscal policies. I think if you're looking at uh, the um, other major economic reforms in a number of countries, I think, um, right. I think France, France is a upward, uh, a positive surprise waiting to happen, in my opinion, if you're looking at corporate investments and the sort of right, right. form of permanent job creation there. So overall, uh, you know, yes, there's a lot of uh, sort of theatrical messiness in the politics. But I think if Ursula von der Leyen is approved for European Commission president in the European Parliament tomorrow, Europe will have a pragmatic uh, mm -hmm. new leadership team uh, led by her and uh, Christine Lagarde at the European Central Bank. Let's try to, I was going to do this geographically, folks, but I think I'll do it from right to left, and the right is the east, and that is, I love this phrase, the Visegrad Group, which goes back to 1335. Jacob Kierkegaard is the only one that passed that exam a, a few years ago. The Visegrad Group is the Czech Republic, Poland, Hungary, and it's sort of a holdover from another time and place. How reactionary is that group politically? I, I think we have to say that that is by far the most reactionary group uh, in the EU. It consists, obviously, of nationalists in Poland and Hungary. 
Uh, it has in it uh, nominally an economic liberal, but uh, Prime Minister Babis of uh, the Czech Republic is facing literally hundreds of thousands of people demonstrating in the streets of Prague against him and, and for alleged yeah. corruption. So uh, this is this is the uh, uh, that is a sort of weak uh, the weakest link in the chain, uh, if you like, politically, in my opinion, in Europe, and it's certainly where the commitment to European integration is the lowest, as well as democracy uh, in the case of Hungary. Would you overlay on this the immigration issue is sort of the first order dynamic as you look across Europe, east to west? Yeah, I mean, I think if you, uh, not necessarily, I mean, if you're talking about issues like immigration, uh, these are obviously and clearly countries that have no interest in uh, uh, receiving migrants uh, from uh, that come to Europe. Uh, they basically want to close their borders. Uh, if you're looking at other uh, things, uh, it's it's not, a lot less clear. Some of these countries are quite close to Vladimir mm-hmm. Putin. Uh, but on the other hand, the Polish government uh, is uh, very hostile right. to Russia. So where are they on a sort of common European foreign policy? Uh, it's unclear. Uh, where are they on broader economics? Uh, these are all countries that receive significant sort of between two and three percent of GDP in annual fiscal transfer uh, through the EU budget from the other richer uh, members of the EU. And they obviously want to continue that mm. kind of economic integration. Jacob von Kierkegaard with us with the Peterson Institute. We're thrilled he could be with us with a nice overlay here east to west on Europe. I want to bring it over to another observation of a week ago, Jacob, which is that the the more austere or traditional fiscal policy is being, yes, obviously Germany, but even the Netherlands. Give us an update on the conservatism financially of the Benelux countries and particularly the Netherlands. I mean, I think, uh, you know, Netherlands have had a business cycle that is a little out of sync with a number of other uh, uh, countries in Europe. And, but they have actually been doing extraordinarily well uh, in recent years. And uh, therefore, they are in a physically better uh, place today. Uh, and, you, and you're seeing that the housing market uh, has uh, stabilized. And uh, therefore, while they are clearly opposed to uh, the kind of policies that sees a, a transfer union, that is very yeah. clear. Uh, domestically, they are very uh, uh, they're very good. Uh, or they are in a different place in terms of domestic right. stimulus, and therefore, uh, they being the traditionally most hawkish country, arguably far more hawkish yeah. than Germany, in fact. Uh, 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 therefore, you know, I think overall the fiscal stance in the euro area is going to be a lot better going forward, uh, and I think we're already yeah. seeing that, in fact. Let's leave it there. Jacob von Kierkegaard, uh, thank you so much. It's been too long. Thank you for being with us. Dr. Kierkegaard, of course, with the Peterson Institute as well. City's up in a pre-market by a little more than 1%, breaking down the numbers. Taylor Riggs dropping by. She'll be doing the earnings on Wall Street through the week. We kick things off, Taylor, coming in a little bit hot on fixed income. 
market's revenue. Your thoughts so far? Exactly. So what I'm noticing here is that the equity market's revenue is coming in light. Now, we were expecting that overall, um, the equity trading to come in light, given that low volatility has just been the theme across the board. But Citigroup had been looking to gain market share within that equities trading group. So we thought that we would hear a little bit of, of how they are grabbing that from Deutsche Bank. We don't see that in the numbers, um, but we will continue to hear from them. And then within the fixed income group, you are seeing it come in a little bit better than expected. We know that there was a lot of bond volatility at the end of the second quarter. So you're seeing the second quarter fixed income numbers come in better than expected. 3.3 versus estimates of $3 billion. Tom, I know you're looking at ROE. That looks like it's coming in a little bit light. They do have an ROE expectation of above 10% for the full year. So looking to boost that number going forward. What I noticed, John, is book value up 10%. Uh, year over year. I mean, it is a different city group than what we saw five or six years ago. Yeah, and I think what the street will be focused on this morning, Tom, is the costs and the cost control. Expense reductions, $100 million deeper than projected. So trading revenue coming in a little bit worse than expected overall, Tom, but the cost and expense reduction program looking pretty good. Taylor, what do we have tomorrow? Tomorrow, we have JP Morgan, Bank of America, all the big heavy hitters, which is unusual. Usually, um, JP Morgan is one of the first banks. So right. This is new. We're getting Citigroup first. That'll be when we really get a big U.S. story and focus on the consumer with the big banks tomorrow. Okay, Taylor Riggs, thank you Thanks, so Taylor. much. We now go to Ken Leon at CFRA, their head of research, who's had a little bit of time to look at this. Ken, on my theme with Taylor, this is not Mr. Corbett's bank of five years ago, is it? It's not. This is a more consistent, reliable bank. This gives investors more confidence. Um, you know, based on the performance today, um, we think it's going to be one of the better ones in the group. Um, investment banking, equity underwriting, and equity trading, as you've mentioned, What's going to be down? And most of this is coming from Europe. And Citi has much more of a concentration outside of Europe in North America, yeah. Asia, and Latin America. So that's a big deal. And I noticed, John, in the spreadsheet, just taking a quick glance, Europe EMEA was soggy. I mean, everything else is, is buoyant. Not surprising. Yeah, Ken, not surprising. your thoughts on cost control at Citi? It's coming really decently this morning. Yeah. It is, and and this is directionally uh, the strong investment in technology. Uh, they also don't have a big footprint in the U.S. on bricks and mortars. Um, it's mostly in concentrated locations. Um, cities just in a second phase, really, where they're able to grow the top line and get more efficient with a 56% efficiency ratio in this quarter. So the big question, Ken, going through the rest of this year, surely cost control isn't a reason to be bullish on the stock through the long term. Where's the growth coming from on the revenue side, Ken? That's the best question because it's really with a lower interest rate environment, it's going to be in the non-interest income area. So you've got to see a healthy pipeline for IPOs and equity underwriting some pick up in equity trading. And of course, there's a lot of other businesses related to the capital markets, such as security services and custodial that that are pretty good. So as long as the economy is strong, the consumer is going to come through and so is commercial loans. And that's 
that what is, what is there, Kenley, on their book dynamic? I mean, tangible book, just to round it down, folks, because there's too much math on a Monday, $61, $66, now up to $67, uh, 90 days on. I mean, they're building book every quarter, aren't they? Uh, they are, and, and and this is the equity flow through, and then we look for valuation at a price to net tangible book value, pushing out all the non-cash items, and uh, this bank and other banks are trading below uh, net tangible book value. Why haven't the shares gone up then as a broader basis at CFRA, looking at all of the larger banks of America? If they've underperformed, why? They caught up in the last couple of weeks. I think the momentum was the Federal Reserve on the CCAR test, which is a return of capital forward yeah. for the next 12 months. Uh, they've underperformed because of the worry of the inverted yield curve and the concern that with a weaker economy next year, that's going to put rates possibly even much lower. Ken Leon, I look at the dividend growth. I mean, on the Bloomberg, the five-year dividend growth, given the crater that Mr. Corbett had, is up 114000 per year. That's not a legitimate number. Can they do a double-digit dividend growth, or can they do a big double-digit day one dividend share buyback combination? Yeah, I love the question because I think they're going to first uh, congratulate themselves on returning $60 billion over the last right. three years. So now going forward, um, yeah, I think certainly if they can drive the top line a little bit better, mid-single digits would be fine. Um, yeah, they, they can certainly have continued momentum on return of capital. So big week ahead for the banks reporting earnings through the week. What are you looking for from the other players just using Citi as some kind of read across? JP Morgan, Goldman, Wells tomorrow, Bank of America Wednesday, Morgan Stanley Thursday. Can your thoughts? So uh, Goldman Sachs, we think, is going to do fine. Um, I think they've gained market share, particularly in investment banking. Um, J.P. Morgan had a weak uh, first quarter, so we'd like to see them do better tomorrow, but it doesn't have to be out of the park. And Wells Fargo, um, still looking for that big announcement, which would be the new CEO and a new management team. Uh, but they did well on the CCAR test. And looking tomorrow, if the U.S. economy is strong and Wells Fargo is more U.S.-centric, that's good for commercial and consumer loans. Well, Ken, I think a lot of people are going to try and use these numbers to get a read on the U.S. consumer. Just looking at Citigroup this morning, set aside $2.09 billion to cover the cost of souring loans. It's a 16% increase. City not worried about it. Can your read on the U.S. consumer and consumer banking in America? A great question. And when you look at City year over year for the second quarter, retail banking was up 3%. The card business was up 4%. Uh, from the Federal Reserve, we're, households are spending more, but they have low fixed costs with mortgages, but more discretionary spending is happening. That flows to cards. That flows to City. That's a good thing. Well, you know, there they are. But if we look at J.P. Morgan as the American front runner, where does Citigroup fit in five years from now? They're investing in their businesses, particularly in the equity capital markets. In the international markets? It is. And, and I think um, the one exceptional position that Citi has is that they have uh, a slim, seamless high um, capability in terms of international yeah. network. So that's Asia. So, you know, when you see the print of emerging markets or you see something related to China, they're well situated in the other well, Southeast countries, which means um, they're going to benefit if Asia does well. Can Leon, quickly here, can you say they will benefit most from the challenges of Deutsche Bank? I think it's going to be Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan. 
Okay, Ken Leon, thank you so much. I can, greatly, thank you. greatly appreciate this. It's a joy to have him on right after these announcements. Mr. Leon running the research shop at CFRA. ABM InBev pulled back on a IPO that was going to raise as much as $9.8 billion uh, for its Asian subsidiary. Big, big uh, uh, black eye for the company. To give us some of the latest, we welcome our good friend Duncan Fox. He covers all things consumer products in Europe for Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us uh, from London. Duncan, thanks so much for being with us. First, just give us a sense of what happened over the weekend with this IPO that's not to be now. Um, good, very good question and good morning. I think essentially um, uh, the initial pricing that they put all the range, which was 40 to 47 Hong Kong dollars, um, just it wasn't going to go. Um, it looked particularly high on the valuation if you get, put it against all the peers. Certainly on a, on a sort of uh, price to sales, it was way over anything that, that's in the market. And it was at the top end of, uh, of a bit dar as well. So it, yeah, everything had to go right, I think, for it to be for it to proceed. So is this a miss, this IPO, let's call it a failed IPO, is this a miss on the part of the company or the bankers or both? I mean, wanted to just you know dial back the price a little bit. I think there's some rules in Hong Kong. I'm not 100% sure that if you once you've got the range, you can't then go outside of that range, so you couldn't go below. Um, my initial thoughts were that it was probably worth sort of 40, 45 billion, and then it came in a lot higher than that, sort of 54 to, to 64 billion. Yeah. So I think they just missed. I think the bankers probably were hoping for a better uh, market than than actually has happened, yeah. and it didn't go ahead. That's because it's a unicorn like an Uber or a Lyft, is <laughs> as well. How is AB? Um, I've already AB InBev. How are they doing? They took out Budweiser. Was that a successful transaction? Certainly, Budweiser was a successful transaction. It was what, 19, uh, 2006, 2007. So, I mean, the timing of that was around the financial crisis, but they've made a, a huge strides with that business in terms of repaying the debt and, and becoming the global uh, behemoth that it now is. Um, certainly, that deal's been very good. There may be some question marks right. over the SAB deal, but certainly not. Uh, Budweiser. Why can't they sell Budweiser in Asia? I mean, I mean, I understand every country, even segments of countries are different. I mean, Paul Sweeney uh, Duncan's never had a Jenny C. Cream ale in his life. <laughs> that is not true. <laughs> which is which is you know very Correct. regional here. But what is the what is the the big brand makeup of Asia? Are, are, do they have any presence at all? Actually, they're, 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 Budweiser is very well represented in Asia on the premium side. Uh, they're probably the leading leading player in that part of the market, but obviously mainstream uh, beers, uh, so be the snow brand from uh, the China Resources Beer Company would be undoubtedly the biggest brand in, in Asia. Uh, and I suppose you've got people that are not uh, have enough disposable income to buy the premium beers, so it, it, long term, they've got a very good position. Uh, I think what they would like to do is is maybe make some further acquisitions so they get a stronger position in mainstream beer so they can then sell 
cool. Bard and Stellar Artois, etc., through that network. And that, that's what I think they were hoping to do. And frankly, that's still there. It's still a long-term goal for the company, there's no doubt about that. This is great. I mean, Paul, I've learned absolutely nothing today, except I didn't know about snow beer. Snow beer. There it is. Well, Tommy, Budweiser in cans is the house beer of the Sweeney household, just so you know. Oh, it is? It is. Oh, please, I, then please, yeah, absolutely. I insist. You have to the know that. The next question. <laughs> exactly. So, Duncan, I know that they, InBev, uh, ABN InBev was going to use some of the proceeds here to pay down debt and position them for perhaps more consolidation of an industry that is not growing. What's their plan now? I think it'll probably be the same. I mean, there was no issue really with their debt, ironically, although it's it's huge at $102 billion or, or thereabouts. 94% of it's fixed at low rates and about 70% of it is over five years uh, maturity. So there really wasn't a need to reduce debt per se. The, the whole point of this was about getting potential into Asian APO, uh, <clears throat> Asian deals. Yeah. And that's not really going to change because deals in Asia take a long time to come to fruition. Uh, even the Heineken CRB deal uh, took a year to get through the regulatory um, hoops. And Carlsberg have been in discussions in Thailand with Sabaco Stake for, yeah. for over two years. So I don't think anything really changes, mm. frankly. It's just a bit embarrassing. Uh, Duncan, this, this has been very informative. Next time we'll do this over a case of Jenny Cremel. Uh, Duncan Fox, who's with Bloomberg Intelligence on Asia Beer. We will simply stop what we're doing to understand that everything of the Bloomberg world was based off a select few people, including Dr. Turing. He took his PhD at Princeton in mathematics, of course, associated with King's College, Cambridge. But as Viviana mentioned, that barely describes his contribution in mathematics to the United Kingdom and also his social contribution. A gentleman ostracized in the 50s, he was singularly pardoned by Queen Elizabeth in recent years, and I'd note the leadership of Prime Minister Brown in resurrecting the reputation of Alan Turning. Joining us this morning from uh, the United Kingdom are Alex Webb, who can uh, give unique perspective on this, and Greg Bottle with us as well with BMP Paribas, expert in mathematics. What does this mean for your world, Alex? You went to the same high school as Dr. Turing. It's extraordinary here, his place in mathematics in the Bloomberg world. Yeah, absolutely. You know, his name lives on in commuting through the Turing test, but um, which is you know, a way of deciding whether AI has reached a level yet where it can fool people into thinking that it's human. It's his role in the Second World War, incalculable with the, the bomb and then Goliath. Um, it, decoding machine which was used to decrypt uh, Enigma and played a significant role in winning the war. But that is, of course, fed into all sorts of um, modern pieces of artificial intelligence. And, and I think there's also a lot of significance here, one imagines, for the LGBTQ community because he was um, ostracized for right. his homosexuality in the years after the war. I mean, ostracized barely describes what he went through in the late 40s and the early 50s. Alex Webb, I think of Dr. Alarian taking over at Queen's College College at Cambridge of a celebration of the mathematics of another time and place. Do you sense a rekindling in the United Kingdom of the innovation from mathematics, or is this just a look back to the past? 
I think absolutely the moment the UK, that sort of golden triangle, I think they call it, London, Oxford, Cambridge, uh, really at the heart of a lot of innovations in artificial intelligence right now. There's a great story that our colleagues in Business Week did recently about how um, mm. a neuroscience feeds into a lot of um, the innovations in artificial intelligence. And of course, the medical schools in those three parts of the world are also very strong. So that fosters these developments. And we're seeing that play out with a lot of the big tech firms. Google, for example, acquired DeepMind, which has a very prominent place in this in, in this industry and there are plenty of other instances of, of startups where we're doing really bleeding edge stuff which is not necessarily being done in the right. same way in silicon valley greg you've lived this as well I'm, when i lecture kids from the united kingdom i'm always blown away how superior they are in mathematics particularly first order difference equations you've got a computational degree you went on to a finance degree as well there's a heritage here it's going to be on a 50-pound note, but it's a heritage that people like you are living every day. What are the dynamics of John von Neumann and, and Alan Turning? What do they mean for you in the modern world? Well, I think technology is such a fast-moving industry. We see the, the rate of IT changes over the last 20-odd years. So I think for someone to, for their work from 50 years ago to still be impacting the world today, I think that speaks to And it's impacts every day. I mean, on a discrete basis, whether it's a Bloomberg terminal or what you deal with every day, your, your massively global bank, it's amazing how that discrete nature still is with us through all these years. Yeah, yeah. And I think the, the march of technology is something that's still in many ways in its infancy. And we see that in the, in the way that we use, uh, yeah. use AI, use technology increasingly in our work, and that's something that's only going to accelerate. Nero, was that nerdy enough for you? I mean, did I really go over the top there in honor of Alan Turing? Absolutely. I mean, your knowledge on his biography was quite astounding. To think that you realize he went to the same high school as Alex Webb, I mean, that's really oh, yes, <laughs> where the rug was put. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.